really asking for and asking tough questions. Does poverty drive inequality or does inequality drive poverty? Women just were not able to reach out and to look for support. We may all be in the same ocean, but some are in super yachts and some are clinging to debris. Emissions are expected to rise to their highest ever level. What should we do now? We are in the same world. We work together for a common goal. Hello and welcome to Oxfam Ireland's First World Problems podcast. I'm Andrew Trimble, the washed up ex-rugby player. On this episode, we'll be talking development, specifically what it is, where Oxfam does it and how it works. I know that many people aren't all that familiar with terms like development or ODA or official development assistance. And I'll probably include myself in that, seeing as I'm just reading a script that's been put in front of me nicely. So I'm very glad to be chatting to two people who are well up to speed with these terms and what they actually mean. Regis Ntutu, Social Norms Advisor with Oxfam in Zimbabwe, and Rosa Brandon, Program Quality Officer with Oxfam in Ireland. I'm really keen to come back at some stage to what those titles actually mean, folks. Um, But for now, welcome along to the show, Regis and Rosa. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Great stuff. Um, Rosa, before we get started, I was hoping, hoping you could define the terms development or ODA for our listeners. And when I say for our listeners, I mean for me as well, please. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, ODA is the Irish government's official development program. And so it works on behalf of the Irish people to address poverty, hunger, inequality around the world. And it's considered a very integral part of Ireland's foreign policy. So I think Ireland actually has one of the highest GMP allocations by percentage of all of the OECD countries. That's the Organisation for Economic Cooperative Development. So I think at the moment it's at 0.32%, but they're aiming for 0.7% of GNP by 2030, which would be brilliant. And I think that that's really reflective of an understanding by Irish people and the Irish government that we're all in a global community um, and we can't move forward unless kind of we all move forward together. So it aims to kind of reduce these vast inequalities that are experienced around the world. (laughs) When it comes to development, there's it's a very contentious definition. There isn't just one global understanding of it. When you start digging into it, you can get into quite complicated and very important arguments. <laughs> That's okay. Give us yours, Rosa, and we'll ruffle a few feathers here. Um, so to make things simple for now, <laughs> when we talk about development, I think we're talking about our long-term development programs where we're looking to create change for the better in a sustainable manner. And so our Irish aid programs specifically look to improve the livelihood of women and youth, gender equality and increasing access to universal health care. Um, and one of the key things that we do, ways that we do that is through partnership. So it's about supporting local structures to grow and thrive. Great stuff. Brilliant. I'm certainly wiser now. Inevitably, we can't avoid 
the topic I'm going to bring up, and it's COVID. And it feels like we've progressed quite a bit, but we still talk about it. Uh, and we just can't get away from it. Uh, Regis, can you tell us a little bit about COVID-19 and how it's impacted Zimbabwe more broadly in terms of its health system and economy? Uh, and then in terms of, of, of people Oxfam work with, how has it changed daily lives for them, um, Regis? Yeah, I think the first thing that we have to realize is that um, the COVID pandemic came at a time when already the health delivery system was in big, big trouble in Zimbabwe in terms of issues. One, there's not been a lot of investment. There's been poor resourcing in the health delivery system. Secondly, we have had a lot of labor-related problems, a lot of forced migration, where we have nurses, doctors emigrating to go to our neighboring countries in South Africa, Botswana, and also a lot overseas to England, Ireland as well. And also a lot of um, long-term strikes by health personnel related to the earlier problem I told about um, poor remuneration for health workers and also poor equipping of the hospitals. And the problems are more so in the rural areas. So the pandemic has come at a time when we are least prepared to handle it. Most of our clients and our rights holders, the people that we work with, are people who are coming from marginalized and vulnerable groups We are talking of people in the rural areas. We are talking of women who are mostly informal earners or survive uh, on less than one US dollar per day and taking living, selling mostly vegetables, second-hand clothes, and all sorts of um, income-generating activities that they do, which are mostly uh, often informal basis. And when we have uh, restrictions, these are the people who are most affected particularly for women. Government regulations require that you have an exemption letter that allows you to move in between the curfew times. And because women are not formally employed, they don't have those exemption letters. And it really wreaks havoc on their personal health. It means that they are not able to access contraceptives, for example, if they are on chronic illness such as hypertension or diabetes, their movements to the local health center is very restricted which puts their health more at risk. But more importantly, the lockdown also means that in terms of care work, domestic work, the responsibilities for women and girls increases. You have more people at home, you cook more meals, you have to go and fetch water in terms of uh, taking care of the household. And this increases more responsibility for women. We did a very small localized research in five suburbs in Harare, and it showed that care work has increased the responsibility and burden on women by four to five hours. While for men, they have also increased the amount of time that they're spending on care work, particularly taking care of children and adults by up to two hours. But it still shows that women are doing a lot of work. And finally, I would want to say that in terms of uh, prevention, WHO, the World Health Organization and Minister of Health regulation says that we have to wash our hands, we have to put on our masks, and we have to do social distancing. This is all very good, but in our context, where we don't often have running water, even in the urban areas, it becomes very difficult for populace to 
actually wash their hands. When members of a household fall sick, it becomes a luxury to actually go into isolation. When you have a big family and you are actually renting out two or three rooms, so we really need to be more innovative in terms of how we address the pandemic and look at ways in which we can provide isolation within our means and our context. We also have been innovative in that in some areas where we work, we've been able to provide up to as much as we can hygiene kits, which consists of masks, sanitizers, and also we've put in solarized pipe water schemes, which enable communities to be able to access clean and portable water. So I'll stop here for the moment. There's a lot that I can say, but it's very difficult to sum up all our work in a few minutes. But this is some of the challenges that we face and some of the innovations that we are trying to put across and help people cope. Absolutely. Regis, no, thanks for that. You mentioned um, the extra hours for women. Is that five hours per day, five hours per week? It's five hours per day, four to five hours per day. That has been the increase normally in the old ways or the old normal. Women do up to 15 hours of care work compared to men who do three to four hours on a normal day in a rural household or in an urban household. And we are not even talking of what we call downtown when they are doing nothing. We see that men spend a lot of time on leisure or just doing nothing up to 14 hours, whereas for women, they are very fortunate if they can have three hours just for self-care or for resting or for leisure. Yeah, and that time's important, yeah. obviously, as well. So there's a number of issues and a number of reasons why women have struggled more through the pandemic than, than men in Zimbabwe. You didn't even mention gender-based violence. Do you want to give us a little bit of insight into that? Obviously, another massive difficulty that they're facing. Yes, this has been one of the key factors that has really, in a way, increased. And the main reason is because of the lockdown and the restrictions, women are then forced to be with their abusers or perpetrators within the household. And therefore, on average, one of our partners are Musasa, which is a Shona word for one of the common trees we have, which means shared or protection. They are doing weekly collecting of data. And on a weekly basis, we are looking at around 500 cases of physical violence, let alone we are not even looking at emotional, uh, sexual violence and so forth. On a monthly basis, we have around 20,000 cases and these are the reported cases. So it becomes very difficult for women to even go and report their issues around gender-based violence. But we have been very innovative in that we now have call centers that we have supported that enable women to call on toll-free lines or on free phones so that they are not uh, charged. And this has helped us to not only collect statistics, but also be able to intervene. We have also tried to capacitate or build the ability or the capacity of households to be able to help each other to report these issues and have community-based women and men who can intervene both in rural areas and also in urban areas. In rural areas, we've taken a step further because they have to travel quite a bit of distance to go and visit those uh, survivors. 
and also ensure that they report their cases to the nearest local police post, as well as to take those that uh, need uh, the health care to the local rural health center. So these community-based carers have been provided with bicycles that enable them to do more visits and to go for longer distance to support survivors. So gender-based violence has really come to the fore. And one of the advocacy things we've done is that we've managed to convince government that any services, interventions to do with gender-based violence be seen as an essential service. So now it's much easier for women and also for some of our partners to be able to provide services since interventions around gender-based violence are now classified as an essential service too. So the movement is a bit much easier now rather than at the very first time when we had the first lockdown. Has it had an impact, Regis? Have you seen the impact on the ground in terms of numbers dropping or maybe you don't have enough data to to kind of track the intervention? What we have is a bit of a contradiction. We've actually seen the numbers increasing, which we take that more people are aware, there's more reporting which in a way is a positive. But over the next few months, we hope that we will have the numbers dropping, but this will take a bit of time. The other positive is that we are also having quite a bit of uh, survivors coming to the shelters. Again, this is an indication that people are aware of the services that are available to them. Women and girls are aware of the referral, what we call the referral pathway where they need to go and seek assistance. So while the numbers are up, which is a contradiction, on the other hand, we are fairly pleased that it's also a proxy indication that people are aware of where they can report, how they report, and where they can seek assistance. Yeah, Rosa, you had something to add there? Yeah, I just, I suppose I wanted to add that, obviously, when we are thinking about different situations, we often kind of comprehend and critique it from our own cultural lens and our own experience. But I think one of the really critical things to understand here is that there are are huge differences in the experiences um, that that we have had in Ireland versus in somewhere like Zimbabwe. And one key one is the type of lockdown. So I think that we have all really been challenged and we've been feeling down and low about the length of the restrictions. But, you know, it's actually a very different type of lockdown that is being experienced in Zimbabwe. And that not being able to move, there isn't the 2K or the 5K limit that we had here. There's a curfew, so you can't leave your house. So that's one of the reasons that we're seeing an increase in gender-based violence. But Also, you know, we have seen that increase in gender-based violence in Ireland, that the reasons are slightly different. The reasons that we're now seeing an increase in the numbers of cases being reported, as Regis said, is awful. But there is some some positive to be taken from it. Not only are people now, as Regis said, aware of the services that are available to them as survivors, but also even before COVID in our gender-based violence programming, where we were doing a lot of awareness raising activities, which was about helping to understand and challenge the cultural norms that gender-based violence is in some way okay. And in many quite paternalistic cultures, it is acceptable to have some form of violence towards your partner. 
So the fact that we're now seeing people come forward and access these services is also reflective of a change in mindset. And that's not to say it's any less awful than it is, but there is something that we can take from that and learn from as well. So it's the first step towards, you know, providing a solution is just realizing that this is not normal behavior, this is not acceptable behavior. And we just, I was planning <laughs> some stage and, and digging into, I, I just find your title very interesting, social norms advisor. I assume that's all tied into what Rose is talking about there, just making people aware of what's acceptable and what's normal behavior. Yes, that is correct. And it is one of the most difficult things to actually, how do you shift social norms? in communities where the norms are usually condone violence against women. And as Rosa said, it's seen as acceptable. And so we have tried to work around a number of things, particularly around how we work with the custodians of culture and tradition, particularly the religious leaders and the traditional leaders, so that we try and convince them first and they also then work with communities to actually try and bring new norms that says in this community, in this village, we do not condone and we do not accept gender-based violence. The other issue as well is that as we do this work, we also try and target a lot of the men so that the men themselves begin to understand that this is not normal behavior, it is not acceptable, and that there are quite a number of men who do not necessarily accept gender-based violence as a solution to any problems that they might have. But the challenge is that a lot more men think that there are not any men at all who are opposed to gender-based violence. So this is one of the normative things that we have to do to try and say, look, there are a lot more out men there who oppose gender-based violence and you might think that there are not many men who oppose that, but let's try and then work around how we move from the few to the many so that we create a new norm. So it is very possible that we can create new norms, particularly where we have the support of the custodians of culture and tradition. We need to do a lot of community mobilization where we train gender champions who are both men and women who actually do door-to-door interaction. But because, again, of COVID, the restrictions of movement, it means that this uh, community mobilization where the gender champions move from door-to-door interacting with families, it is no longer possible. But we've also been innovative. We have community radio stations where some of the gender champions begin to talk on radio. This is the most accessible form of uh, communication particularly in Zimbabwe and in the rural area. So where we have men who are gender champions, where we have men who have realized the error of their ways and talking about the experiences, and this helps convince a lot more people within communities that it is possible for us to shift social norms around gender-based violence. Rosie, you had something to add there? Yeah, I suppose I wanted to bring in some work that we do across Oxfam, but one of the really impactful ways that we work across PG2. And PG2 is our Irish aid funded program, which is called Program Grant. And we work in this particular program in Zimbabwe, but also in Malawi, in Rwanda, in Uganda and in Tanzania. 
I think a, a really good example of trying to develop new social norms has come out of work in Rwanda, although there are examples in many other countries as well, which use this thing called GALS methodology, which is gender action learning systems which sounds very uh, technical, but actually when you boil it down to what it is, it's working with an individual household to co-plan for the future. So you don't need to be very literate. You don't have to have lots of paper and pens or anything. You can just draw something in the ground. But it's about starting a conversation within a household about what a woman can bring to the household, what a man can bring to the household in terms of assets, in terms of skills. And then thinking together, what do you want for two years' time? What do you want for five years' time? And that prompts a conversation of, well, are we better working together then? Are we better pooling our resources and being able to decide collectively that we will prioritize school fees at this point and then we will prioritize fixing a roof at that point? And and how are we going to get there? We find a lot with the work that we do that whilst we work with women and youth for income generation activities, often a woman will earn some money, but then she has no power over where it's spent. And so what this methodology we call GALS does is helps to start that conversation. Somebody joked a couple of years ago that it was like marriage counseling. And I suppose if you look at it like that, you could argue that it is. But it is about starting this conversation where it is normal to accept that both parties in a household are able to contribute and are able to work together for a common goal. That's really interesting. And, and the idea of, I suppose, sitting down, having a conversation and discussing it rather than implementing change or educating, it's all being part of one conversation together. Rosa, Oxfam Ireland works in, in other countries as well, as well, Malawi, Rwanda, Tanzania, Uganda. Do you want to tell me a little bit more about the work being done in these countries before COVID and how things were progressing? Yeah, well... um, I think COVID has done one thing really for our programs and it's helped to highlight how we've built sustainability into our programs. Because last year, what with all of the lockdowns, we were not able to do the same sort of community engagement as we would have been doing in the past. Yet still, we were able to see the change that we had started. The ball continued to roll. So that's in areas of women and youth economic empowerment, um, in gender equality, and in access to universal health care. When we say gender equality, I know we've spoken about gender-based violence, but we also look at transformative women's leadership and trying to get more women at local community level all the way up to national level into positions of decision makers and positions of power. So what we do is we work through partners. And I think that this is a really important aspect of the program. And one of the biggest strengths of Oxfam's work and the work that Irish Aid supports is that we work in partnership with local organizations. So not only supports local civil society organizations or youth groups or women's networks or farmers cooperatives to bring about the change that they would like to see in a sustainable manner. But it also works to challenge sort of paternalistic ideology, this power imbalance. It kind of entrenches the idea 
that people here and people in the West are generous givers and people in the countries that we work with are grateful receivers. Because what we do is we work in partnership with local organizations and then we're able to learn how we can support culturally appropriate and sustainable change that really values sort of indigenous knowledge and diversity. So that's one of the key things that we do. I don't know if that's clear or if it's still abstract. Um, no, it's a really interesting conversation. And uh, have you experienced that reaction um, on the ground whenever you kind of go to some of these places uh, and almost a bit of an eye roll and almost a bit of a, here we go, the same old script, Irish people telling us how to live our lives. Is that an exaggeration of this or is there just an element of that? No, no, I wouldn't say that that's, that's what, Personally, I've experienced Regis, maybe you have another view, but because we have such strong principles of partnership in the way that we we work, that's not going to come about. But I suppose if we like put it into context a little bit, it is like if an American or an English person or a farmer or a doctor or a rugby player were to come to Ireland and say, here are some cows, this is the best way to farm them. Or here's a vaccine for COVID-19, this is how to administer them. Or here's a ball, this is the, the best approach to rugby. There are many people. <laughs> we have we have experienced exactly that from New Zealanders. <laughs> but you know, there are lots of people, <laughs> there are lots of people here who would go, well, actually, we know a better way of farming that particular piece of land or we know quite a successful approach to rugby. You know, so, so what we try and do is we build local structures and we work with the structures that are already in place to move from there. Um, and so I know that that is a very, very simple way of, kind of boiling things down. But I do think that when we're considering the impact of Ireland and Irish people around the world, it is really critical to explore how important that broader approach of partnership with local organizations is for a whole range of reasons. That's really interesting, Rosa. Regis, have you anything to add to that or anything that you've you've seen in your experience or in terms of how important those partnerships are, Regis? Yeah, I think the partnerships have been very important, but the one positive thing that has come out of this COVID pandemic is that because of the lockdown, the restrictions of movement, we have not been able to go and do a lot of support visits, monitoring to our partners on the ground and also engage the communities. But what this has taught us and what we've learned is that by looking at innovative ways of how we can support our partners and and the communities we work with, it has actually made us listen more to the communities as well as to our partners. When we've read to ask them, so we have not been able to meet for the past few weeks. What have you been up to? And it's amazing how they have come up with ways in which they have um, addressed some of the challenges that they face, how they've tried to cope in within the COVID pandemic looking at ways such as, for example, we work with uh, young women and they've told us that they've had to look into their community and look at mentors from the business community, people who have um, done very well by the standards of that community and they've come in to actually assist the community's people who would not normally 
be involved in the development work that Rosa was talking about. So this has opened the community and our eyes to that. There are some resources that we can tap to within the community that the communities and our partners have been able to do. And so for me, the learning point is that perhaps as we develop this partnership, we need to listen more to our partners in the communities. We need to actually tap more into the solutions that they come up with as they try and um, overcome some of the challenges that they face. So for me, I think it's very important that we also document and um, record these changes that we are seeing and actually see how we build onto them in sustainable ways, but also make them new models of working as well so that we develop even deeper ways of partnership as we continue with our work. Yeah, Rosa, those partnerships potentially could have been even more important during COVID, during lockdown, as you said. Their lockdown is different to our lockdown. It's more important to be really connected, I suppose. And, and Regis was talking about connecting with you know rural communities that were more impacted by COVID, less connected, less community, less engagement. How have those relationships with the partners allowed more access there or helped that situation? Regis, do you want to, to take that or should I? Please go ahead, then I'll jump in. So uh, we found that uh, in many places where there are really strict restrictions, um, Oxfam was not able to travel from the office into that place, just not allowed to. And so to have to, to be able to partner with local organizations who are already based in that community or to be able to create and, and build local structures that operate independently of that additional support meant that we didn't have to have that kind of traditional feet on the ground approach to our work for it to continue. And I think, as Regis said, you know, there's there has been so much innovation and uh, with, with partners and communities coming up with their own solutions to how to get around their individual, the individual challenges that are posed by each situation. Because as I say, each lockdown has been different. Each, each place that we've worked with, each community that we've worked with has, has faced slightly different problems. And I know that in general, we can say markets collapsed, there was a rise in GBV, but actually how each individual person and how each individual community experienced that was so different that being able to 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 draw on that experience and that knowledge meant that our programs were able to continue despite all of these challenges that covid posed regis have you added to that yeah i think one of the things also has been how we've managed to use existing technology particularly communication for us as the Oxfam and as our partners, that is meant being more familiar with such things such as Zoom, uh, Microsoft Teams, etc. But at community level, we've actually had to rely more on the use of cell phones. But the difficulty or the most critical challenge has been around data costs. And so we've had to see how we can provide data to some of the partners in the communities, but encourage a lot more use of the WhatsApp groups. So now rather than have a physical workshop, we've been able to conduct workshops actually along WhatsApp platforms, which has been very 
innovative and working. The other issue has been the issue of radio, where we have had a lot of phone-in radio programs. In the past, this would just be a lot more uh, of radio programs, but now we support community members to be able to phone in, discuss the experiences, talk about the issues that they are facing, the solutions that they've come up with. And so a lot more people are still able to reach the same or more or less the same number of communities through radio programs and phone in. So it has been the innovative use of technology as well. So the question of uh, communication through radio, communication through WhatsApp platforms has been very useful in terms of actually keeping connected with the communities that we are doing. The one other thing that we have seen that has also worked um, has been solidarity among the community members themselves. There's a lot more sharing, not only of knowledge, but of um, resources, which has enabled communities to survive. Rosa talked about the closing of markets. One of the things that has really worked has been a very elaborate system that is emerged of communities battering things. Somebody's vegetables, another person has chickens or rabbits, and they butter that. So you find that there are these things that then enable people to actually enable life to continue by trying out new things that normally would not have happened, such as asking who is this, more of this and less of that, and sharing among themselves. So we find that this sort of solidarity mechanism has enabled communities to actually keep going in times of restrictions and the collapse of the of the markets. The other thing also that has happened is that um, we've encouraged a lot of village um, saving groups, but because of the collapse of the economy and also what has happened is that um, where in some parts of the country, particularly in the southern part of the country, where we are working, people are tending to do their savings using the South African rand, which keeps more value rather than the local currency. And um, so government policy allows this to happen. And so again, the communities on their own themselves, they actually identify that it is better that we use this currency for keeping value on our savings. So a lot of innovation has been happening that is coming from the communities, which are then able to uh, support and actually encourage communities to continue finding ways of restoring their wealth, keeping their wealth, and trying to build their asset base during these uh, difficult uh, times brought by the pandemic. I, um, I want to read this just on the note of the use of technology. So just for a bit of background, um, a lot of our work before the pandemic, we would do big community campaigns and community mobilization campaigns where we would bring people together to discuss issues of gender-based violence or to discuss issues of women's leadership. We weren't able to do those campaigns. Obviously, the large gatherings are restricted and, and are not advised. Mm -hmm. But the, the team in Zimbabwe did some amazing work with partnering with a local TV station. I was wondering, Regis, maybe you could talk us through the, the TV program. Yes, uh, thank you very much for bringing that up and reminding of that. So um, we, what we had seen happening was that there was a lot of community 
theater groups and also drama groups that um, had been formed or that were already in existence and as well as local comedians. And these were able before pre-COVID times to be able to do the community gatherings that Rosa is talking about. But as COVID dug in deeper, we were then able to connect with a local producer and speak to the national television and had a 13 series soap opera called Chipo, which means the gift. And this looked at a floor family around different members of the household that was looking at gender-based violence issues such as um, social norms, the question of how young women could navigate their sexuality, could, could navigate their relationships in times of COVID, and that moving again from rural areas to peri-urban areas or even urban areas, thinking that that could be a better move in terms of the COVID, but actually finding out that um, the semi-peri-urban areas or the rural areas do not have um, the same connections as in the rural areas. But the long and short of it is that a lot of people were able to tune into this program. We had very good uh, numbers uh, in terms of viewership, but also requests from community members to actually have a lot more of this. And we still need to see how we can continue to support um, the series into the third season. We have had two seasons which were well received, but more important is to actually look at other ways in which we can bring the series to those that necessarily don't have access um, to TV and maybe have a spin-off from the television series to a radio series. So this is one of the innovative ways in which I've used so that people are able to see what is happening within their communities was as part of a, a, a two-season uh, television series that is basically looking at gender-based violence and how they can actually begin to navigate the, the difficult times brought about by COVID with relation to gender-based violence. Frigis, that's really interesting to hear the creativity and the innovation that's that's being used to communicate that message and educate and, and help and keep people connected uh, where you are. Rosa, do you want to tell us a little bit about some of the positive stories from, from other countries? I know, for example, in Oxfam, you work with a lot of marginalized women and young people. What kind of positive changes? Can you tell us any specific stories about individuals? So we had, as I say, lots of different places experienced COVID differently. So there were lots of different innovations and kind of success stories that came out of it. Hard to kind of just select one or two, but one that comes to mind was some work that was supported in Uganda, in the urban areas of Uganda, where young people had moved from rural areas into urban areas for various jobs. And then businesses, as they did here, closed or collapsed. So they lost employment. Um, Rent is high in the urban areas, but if you're not allowed to go back home because of restrictions, you are there. So one of the innovations that partners and the team in Uganda came up with was to develop these backyard vegetable gardens. So they kind of developed these demonstration plots where you can use a really small urban space to grow fast developing vegetables. And that can be used for food or could be sold at various markets. Or they've now gone a step further and they're now doing online sales and they're doing door-to-door delivery because the markets have collapsed. 
But there are cases where we've had particular youth groups that we've set up these demonstration plots in different areas in Uganda. And those demonstration plots, individuals have decided this is such a good idea that they have continued to support the youth group plot, but they also take it home and they make their own garden. So um, there was one case where a young girl who is unable to go to school anymore started producing her own vegetables because the schools had closed. So instead of getting up to whatever kids get up to when schools are closed, she had taken this idea and the techniques that were learnt, well, that her sister had learnt at this youth garden and had started producing them at home. So that's, I think, another example of how the work that we do is is kind of organically scaled up. Somebody sees it working somewhere else and they don't necessarily need that direct input. They can use that idea and use that information to work on something themselves. It's mad how you always overlook young people and what they're capable of doing and how they can see something and it can just trigger something, a little bit of creativity or innovation and just spark something incredible. We don't often expect that from young people, but that's always the case, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. And we find actually with our work in this particular Irish aid program is that we work with target women and youth. The reason for for working specifically with women and youth is because there are marginalized groups. Youth don't often have the assets that older people have. I mean, in a way, we are still seeing it here in the sense of I'm in my 20s. Am I ever going to own a house? I don't, probably not. <laughs> you know, like it's just because of the way that society's worked out, it's probably not going to happen. But you can translate that in a way to, to the really strong and growing youth populations in Africa, south of the Sahara, um, with the lack of assets, but with an education and not that many opportunities. So we do specifically work with youth groups and youth networks in order to facilitate this kind of growth. Brilliant stuff. It's great to see yeah, the support that they're getting. Irish Aid are very much involved in a lot of the work you're doing, Rosa. Yeah, so the program that Regis and I work on together is is Irish Aid funded. And so they work with us to ensure that the programs can go ahead through various funding mechanisms. But Irish Aid also supports different funding mechanisms. And I think maybe Regis, you can touch on how in Zimbabwe we were able to merge the humanitarian and the development funding together in the Musasa shelter. Yes, um, Musasa, like I explained earlier on, is one of our partners who are working mostly addressing gender-based violence through prevention provision of services. And what we have done is we have some shelters as if, as well as what we call one-stop centers where survivors can get most of the services that they need from healthcare services police and services, as well as any clinical services and shelter services. But what we've been able to do is that in the shelters we, where the survivors, we've been able to do some skills building around our livelihoods where survivors, as part of their therapy, they learn how to grow vegetables, they learn how to look after indigenous or local chicken that are more resistant to diseases. This is part of learning new skills. 
when they leave the shelter, they're able to put these skills into practice and more and more income and actually begin to live more independent and economic lives. And so this has been combination of what we've been doing in the long-term development work, as well as bringing in humanitarian uh, work as well. But more importantly, as Rosa indicated, when they leave the shelter, they go back into their community where their community-based carers were able to support them in terms of the skills building and the livelihoods, as well as support them in terms of any psychosocial help that they might need such as counseling and also continue to follow up on their cases that have been taken through the criminal justice system and where it is necessary for them to continue to seek uh, and help, see that they do not default on that as well. So it is important that we do long-term development work, but at the same time address the immediate humanitarian needs that survivors might have. Yeah. Thank you, Regis. And I think just one thing to to really bring out there is the flexibility that Irish Aid were able to offer their their partners, being Oxfam, throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. And it meant that we were able to merge our humanitarian funding with our development funding in this particular context where it was appropriate. And I think the the flexibility that has been offered is reflective of how the Irish people through Irish aid are able to support our work across various countries and to be adaptive and flexible to the situations that arise. Great stuff. Really important to know how much support there is. Regis, sorry, go on there. Yeah, I wanted to actually say one of the things that um, strengthens then the partnership between Oxfam in Zimbabwe, our partners in Oxfam in Ireland in Irish Aid, I think it's been also our ability with support from Oxfam Island to be able to be accountable for all the work that we do, whether it is in terms of resources, in terms of actually very accurate and timely reporting, so that for Irish Aid and for the Irish people, they really get a sense that um, the resources that are brought towards this work are actually being used in not only in very good ways, but we're able to show that this is happening in a particular way. So I think the question of accountability becomes very important. It becomes uh, a very good way to ensure that this partnership continues. And therefore, it is something that I think we really need to keep working on and strengthening so that we're able to show that this aid is actually very helpful, but not only helpful, but it's being utilized in ways that are bringing lasting change to communities and we're able to show that very clearly. Rosa and Regis, thank you so much for coming on and thanks for a really interesting conversation. I'm certainly wiser off the back of it. So thanks so much for coming on and contributing. Thanks for joining me on Oxfam Ireland's First World Problems podcast. You can post your thoughts and comments on the podcast using the Twitter hashtag First World Problems Pod and check out OxfamIreland.org to learn more about Oxfam's work. 
Join me next time when I'll be delving into the topics of poverty and inequality with Colette Bennett, economic and social analyst with Social Justice Ireland, and Jim Clark and CEO of Oxfam Ireland. Thanks again.